Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of PwC's How to Empower podcast. We've just finished digitally recording our latest episodes, uh, where I've just had the most amazing conversation with, with two of the most inspiring women. Um, it, it's left me speechless, and, and that's not a uh, an easy task. Normally, you can't shut me up, um, but the, the conversation is is absolutely incredible, uh, and I can't wait to share it with you. Um, I'll be joined by Kamel, uh, Dr. Kamel Hothi OBE, who spent 40 years at Lloyd's Banking Group, uh, creating one of the city's first ever BAME and women networks some 25 years ago. Uh, today, Kamel is an advisor to Her Majesty the Queen on our Commonwealth Trust Fund across 53 countries, uh, as well as being a board member and trustee to charities including outsiders society and the Teenage Cancer Trust. Um, uh, Kamel is joined by uh, Laura Hinton, our Chief People Officer at PwC, um, as well as working with global clients to support them in cultural change, performance management, uh, and talent relating uh, challenges. Uh, in this episode, we, we talk about helping, uh, empowering to spot the potential of everyone in the workplace. And Laura and Kamel share their personal stories about their own journeys to where they are today. Um, and what often people see is their job titles, but behind that, there is so much more. Um, I'm not going to say anything more. It's, it's an absolutely fantastic listen, and I really hope you enjoy. Hello, Kamel and Laura. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Kamel, in the intro, I made a reference to just a few of, of your accomplishments, but uh, it'd be great if you could tell me and our listeners, what would we read on your CV? What does the world know about you? Um, hi, Chris. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me and um, participating. Um, so what's on my CV? Uh, well, you've called a few of those highlights out. But, <laughs> it's a long um, CV. It is. Um, very much started as a cashier at uh, TSB, um, went on working uh, way up the ladder, became the first Asian bank manager across the banking world, going back a few years ago, um, then uh, managing about 160 branches. Um, then I got involved with the, the merger of Lloyds and TSB. This is going back in time when we first merged. And um, we had a challenge. It was a real two different banks, very different cultures coming in. At the same time, a lot of our processes were taking out of our banking system. So it's causing a lot of, we took the eye off the ball of the customer. Um, so I started an initiative called Working Together Smarter, uh, which really helped my bunch of branches. Um, this was recognized by one of the execs who came down and saw what I was doing. He basically asked me to then um, roll it out right across the organization. So I jumped across from retail to operations, really loved the role, um, it was very challenging. But that's when I started witnessing the lack of diversity in head office environments, so the lack of uh, gender equality, especially BAME. So ethnic minorities were hardly anybody that looked like me, and it was quite challenging. And I, that's when I really felt my colour and my sex, um, and and then um, developed those um, the ethnic minority network and the women's network. And um, it was doing those that um, I spoke at at a conference that somebody from the government heard what I was um, had my speech and basically said, look, could you lead a task force for us to improve our supply diversity across government? Um, and um, I really didn't know what she was talking about because it was something new to me. But uh, uh, I took the risk and did that role. It's a voluntary role. Um, and something happened. It was like, you know, these people really uh, were hanging on every single word I was saying. Um, 18 months later, it was one of the best white papers across government, really shaped the way that they procured contracts. Um, eventually helped our company, Lloyds Banking, to be the headline sponsor for the Games. And then we built the platform to allow small businesses to participate. Um, but it did something for me, really boosted my confidence to thinking that, you know, this, these people outside of my organization thought I had so much more to give. 
um, um, a marital entrepreneur who's constantly saying access to finance is difficult. Um, and yeah, we were one of the strongest banks in the UK, and yet we're bottom of the pecking order as far as the Asian community is concerned. So I did my research and um, um, my mentor managed to get me 20 minutes on the board to present to them what this idea was. They liked it. They gave me six months and I seconded, um, would have lost my job because I couldn't backfill it, but uh, I took that risk. Um, and I'm proud to say um, I got headhunted from there to corporate banking. And um, within four years, we became leaders in the market. So I designed cultural training courses, products, um, new marketing campaigns. Um, from there, they asked me to lead the bank's 250th anniversary as well when uh, we were having, you know, um, and then crisis hit 2008, the banking crisis, um, which was really, um, although this is a health crisis at the moment, um, must admit in the banking world, that was probably just very similar. Um, and overnight we were asked to rescue another bank and took us down with it. So we had to be rescued. Um, and as the board was asked to step down, um, the new CEO asked me to stay on to say, look, we're gonna have to build trust and pride. Can you help us find a creative way? So I stayed on and um, over the course of six years, looked at all of the ways that we did uh, community investment programs. And, um, and I'm proud to say over six years, rather than raising six million, raised 20 million and reshaped the way the blueprint of doing those partnerships and volunteering partnerships um, and managed within six years, um, paid the government back. So I retired in 2017. Um, and that's and the other stuff you, you mentioned, the, the voluntary roles that I'm doing at the moment. I mean, as CV goes, I mean, yours isn't a bad one, is it? That's absolutely incredible. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Laura, same question to you. It'd be great to get to know, um, you know I guess, your compliments and, and your journey to, to PwC today. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Really happy to share it. So it's always tough following Kamel in particular, than the <laughs> really impressive um, CV. So let, let me do my best. So um, uh, I graduated from King's College, so went to university in London uh, with a business management degree. So had a, a first class degree, not quite sure what to do with it, um, but wanted to go into business in, in some way and, uh, and had some advice early on that um, actually qualifying as an accountant left lots of options open. So that, that's what I decided to do. Um, and my first job was with um, a mid-tier firm, so BDO, uh, qualified as an accountant, uh, spent a number of years as an auditor, um, and then retrained, requalified uh, to focus on HR management, people, leadership development. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to make partner um, at BDO um, pretty quickly. So I was 29 when I made partner um, and was given an, a, a fantastic opportunity actually to set up an HR consulting practice uh, from scratch. So to reinvent myself, I effectively took a year out. I went off to Harvard Business School, uh, did an executive MBA type program, wrote a business case, recruited a team um, and set up an HR consulting practice uh, from scratch. Knew nothing about it, a huge learning curve and had a huge amount of fun um, doing that. So led that practice as a partner uh, for three years uh, for BDO um, and then decided to venture into the big wide world and uh, looking for the next challenge. So um, I made the move to PwC, so about 15 years ago now. Um, so joined PwC as an HR consultant, uh, joined the firm uh, to lead the HR uh, consulting practice in the UK. Um, having been a partner at BDO for three years, I, I took the, the risk. I think as I look back, it, it certainly was a risk, but to come into the firm as a director. 
um, on the hope that everything would happen um, as uh, we had anticipated and that I would make partner at PwC. Um, that did happen, thankfully. So I made partner within a year of joining the firm. So that was uh, about 14 years ago now. And, and I've always been within PwC, within the HR consulting world. So very focused on our clients. Um, as you said in the intro, so very much kind of helping our clients think about their people, challenges, culture, values, performance, talent. Um, and that's been the constant in terms of career whilst at PwC. But I've always added um, a different role alongside that and, and often a management role. So uh, back in 2008, I, I was asked to be a, a, a business unit leader, so to run part of the practice here. Um, at PwC, a huge learning curve. 2008 was a challenging year, as Kamal has also referred to in terms of um, recession, financial crisis. So really developed a lot personally, learned a lot in terms of running a, a new team as part of our tax practice. Um, I joined our tax leadership team um, a few years later uh, to be the head of people there, actually having spent three years running the HR consulting practice um, across the network. So a number of different internal roles that took me up till four years ago when I joined um, the executive board of PwC um, as chief people officer uh, and did that uh, as a standalone role for the first year before also adding the role being responsible for the firm's operating model transformation. So thinking about how we are set up and run um, across the UK. Um, and I'm now also responsible for firms' reputation, communications. Um, so I've added that to my portfolio as well. Um, and I'm currently leading the COVID-19 uh, response for the firm. So um, pretty busy, lots going on, but actually a job that I absolutely love as I bring all of those different elements together, but still very much with that people change transformation streak that kind of runs through pretty much everything that I do. Absolutely amazing. I mean... If I can have a CV as half as as accomplished as either of yours, I'll, I'll be a very, very, very happy man. Um, but uh, Camille, we 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 discussed offline that um, there is so much more behind what's on the CV, the the titles and the accomplishments. So can you tell me what's not on your CV and, and tell us a bit more about Camille? Um, thank you, Chris. And I think when somebody asks you that, I always find I have to pause for a moment because. Um, <laughs> you get so used to um, being somebody else in the workplace. And um, so in a nutshell, I was, I was born in India, in Punjab. Um, my parents survived the part, um, the, you know, when the British came out, the partition of India, Pakistan. So unfortunately we were on the wrong side of that when that line was drawn. Um, so there's biggest migration of refugees coming from back into India and um, basically lost everything through that transition. Um, my dad's a civil engineer and he built one of the biggest um, dams in India so it was recognized by Nehru and so a very proud man but during that time there was that all that you know, we've heard about the Windrush scandal Britain was asking for you know the Commonwealth to come and help build Britain so we came to Britain in the 60s so it was a very difficult um, you know when we talk about diversity at the moment <laughs> lack of diversity was an understatement um, uh, I'm a Sikh, so one of our biggest identities, um, my brothers, we, we don't cut our hair, so we wear turbans. Um, so you can imagine, you know, living 12 of us in one household, no money, all clothes being made from home, so bullying was rife at school. Um, and my brothers, who were just probably a bit too old, they were just leaving in the final year of, uh, of schooling, used to come home every single day being bullied from, work, uh, from school with their turbans ripped off their head. And um, 
for a Sikh, that's um, one of the most uh, emotional things you could do. And so for my father, it, it just got too much. So he took my brothers and himself, went to the barbers and cut their hair. And the reason I'm telling this story is, you know, when he came back, um, I always remember the impression on my mum's face. So this woman, this genteel woman was looking at my, my father. A, he hadn't told her he was going to do this. Um, and dad was saying, look, you know, we've decided to come here. We integrate. So we do everything that we can. And sorry, please forgive me. I'm going to use this phrase because I, that's the only way I can describe it. We started to learn how to wear masks when we were very, very young to hide yourself from how the public or anybody saw you. Um, but more importantly, it was my mum. She never spoke a word, just sat there crying. And I could see what she was thinking and why did you bring us here? Um, and what the heck? Um, but she never challenged my father. And that taught me another lesson that as a female, I had no voice. Um, so that became very much my grounding that um, dad had a huge chip on his shoulder, wouldn't allow me to go into university or to college because he, ne he was also working in the factory. It was a help of my brother who managed to get me the, the application to work at the TSB as a, as a cashier. Everything was fine. And 18 months later, I came home and they were going to see a family. And um, um, it was an arranged marriage. And literally two hours, they came back and said, we said, yes, you know, we all everything on the CV, as you call it, ties up. He's an accountant, very big family, come from a very good home back from India. Um, and you're getting married in three months time. So it's literally mar marrying a stranger. Um, and then ended up in this household, met him on my wedding night, literally a very strict household where the women had no say. So on one side of my fence is this very dominating, male dominated industry in banking. And on the other side of the fence, very male dominated as well, but even worse so the women, uh, there's this hu huge hierarchy issue going on in our culture. Um, so I had a real ally in my, not my husband, unfortunately at that time, but my father-in-law who's really uneducated, who said, look, I'm all, if you want to carry on working just don't tell the women what you do but you're going to have to do all the chores everything at home um silently and it's not the advice you'd give now but basically that became my life and i call it my twin she didn't look like me she doesn't act like me but she had this pressures of home but as soon as i stepped outside i became another woman so that's what drove me at work so much because the job meant everything to me but when i got home it was just keeping everything under the radar, not making any noise. Um, and then unfortunately, you know, I, I did have two children. I went through postnatal depression, was quite um, attempted suicide. I mean, it's mental health week, so I will open up. Um, it got too much. So uh, my son, my younger son was six weeks old when it just got too much. And I recall trying to do something if it hadn't been for my elder son running in stopping me and it's guilt and shame that I have to carry with me for the rest of my life but that was for me was my turning point that I would never allow myself to get to that point again and I had to find a way to survive um anyway fast tracking 38 years later I'm still living in the same household still married to my husband um four generations in one household my sons are married my daughter has lived with us I'm a grandmother and my mother-in-law became my biggest advocate you know, my biggest ally. Um, so it hasn't been easy, but I think what I was learning from home did absolutely push my career, also formed my leadership style at work, but vice versa, what I was learning at work eventually did help me at home to actually manage my resilience, manage the, the, the trauma, anxiety that I was facing. Well, Kamel, I mean, I'm left speechless and, and, and totally awe-inspired and 
uh, right at this moment in time, I'm cursing that our podcast has a 20 minute limit. Um, but thank you so much for being so open and, and honest. Um, Laura, when we spoke offline, you mentioned that people often want to get, just want to know to get the, the Laura, the, the chief people officer, not Laura, the person. So can you tell us about Laura, the person? Yeah, very happy to. And it's, it is interesting. And I think, you know, whatever your job title, um, you know, whatever, you know, particular field you're in in life, it's so easy for people to make assumptions about you as a person based on you on your you as your job title and your CV. And I think um, hopefully we can bring some of this to life today that actually the, the real person um, is often very different from the assumptions that somebody might make about uh, you know what they expect of somebody given the job that they do and i think that's probably true of me as well i think all of the stats that are out there would tell you that somebody with my start in life and my background wouldn't end up doing the job that i now do and i feel hugely privileged that i, that I have had that opportunity so i guess back to uh, the beginning around you know what really makes me tick so i was born um, in the East End of London, um, in a, into a you know a very working class background. Um, I lived on a council estate. I went to a comprehensive school, um, and and that was really my kind of foundations in life. I'm one of three um, children. We had very very little money, um, but you know to me that that was just life. It was very normal. There was nothing that particularly stood out for better or for worse. Um, I didn't. You know, I, I don't have particularly you know fond memories or bad memories of school it was just something that I I kind of went through the motions went through the process um, I always stood out at school for lots of um, different reasons not least in the, the school that I was at it was a very large comprehensive school it was it was a pretty tough environment um, I guess looking through the the lens that I have now 80% um, of the the students at that school um, spoke English as a as an additional language so very um, you know focused on either Indian or Pakistani background. Um, so I was in the minority. So somewhat bizarrely being, you know, a white uh, British female, but in London um, and stood out and um, physical characteristics didn't necessarily help me. I was six foot tall um, at the age of 12. Um, so it's quite hard to blend into the background in that kind <laughs> of uh, environment. Um, so I, I learned to be a bit of a chameleon, I suppose. I didn't have a particularly close group of friends, but I could go between different groups, different people, different cultures, home, school life, um, and just kind of get by um, in a, a very unassuming way. And I think, you know, gave me some amazing skills about I was you know, a bit of a chameleon, but negotiator, had a fairly tough home life as well. So very much a kind of peacemaker, moderator, um, but taught me never to put my head above the parapet in terms of have an opinion, stand out, it would usually end badly um, and that is a, a kind of defining experience I suppose as, as you go up grow up um, I think definitely defines who you become as a as an adult as a person as a professional um, so that was very much kind of how I was wired aspirations were were pretty low in terms of the school uh, that I went to um, really have a clear memory of having a conversation with a careers um, officer I think I was 15 at the time um, who made, again, all of these assumptions, I mean, based on what they saw in front of them, to be fair, 
um, around, well, you know, you, we're assuming you won't get any qualifications, you won't sit your exams, you'll go out, you'll leave school at 15, 16 um, and, and get a job locally. That's what most people did. Um, the suggestions at the time were to go and work in a supermarket. It was seen as a very stable um, a stable role and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that and many of my friends did do that but that was a real wake-up call for me because for whatever reason I, I was wired differently to think actually I, I had assumed I would live a different life and I would see the world and I would um, get an education but uh, nobody in my family had ever really done that but I think it was a real um, moment of really kind of sit up take control of my life and, and become focused um, to, to live a different path or to follow what was expected of me. So that was really a kind of key point um, where I decided to you know, focus on my exams, get through my GCSE, study for A-levels. And I was one of only two uh, students in my year that did A-levels, um, you know, and thankfully was, you know, bright enough to get focused and to do well to ultimately get to King's College. But I think um, all of that background and experience isn't necessarily what um, you would expect of somebody now working within a professional services firm. I had, I think when I was at university, quite interestingly, as part of the milk round, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but did apply to some of the big four firms. Or I think it was big six back then. Um, I didn't even get an interview. So it, it's really interesting how much the world has changed. I think how, how much professional services has changed and PwC absolutely has changed in terms of the profile um, of people that you know work with us. It's a very, very broad um, church now, um, but in a way that it wasn't. And that was 25 years ago and the world has moved on a lot. But I think certainly that personal experience in terms of coming into the workforce, my personal experience um, growing up alongside the opportunity through the role that I have now gives me a real sense of passion and purpose around diversity, particularly from a social mobility but also a gender perspective. So that's not necessarily obvious on my CV. To some extent, it comes with the job title, but it goes much uh, deeper than that in terms of a real uh, as I said, sense of responsibility around making the professions more accessible for, for people that come behind me and doing whatever I can to make a difference. Well, having joined the firm as a wheelchair user, I can say it's been very, very welcoming. Um, and I, I can't say to have any sort of similar experience to both of you, but uh, I think to your point, a, a lot of people, and it still blows my mind when people approach me, when I see me in the wheelchair, and are bamboozled that I have a job. And you have to sort of reiterate that, yes, lots of people with disabilities you know, have full, meaningful careers. Um, and uh, yeah, I think the old adage is true, is that you know, never judge a book by its cover. Um, Kamel, I know throughout your journey, you alluded to um, a couple of allies that supported you, um, yeah, I guess, or, uh, supported you throughout your, your journey. Um, could you tell us a bit more about those and, and why you call them your heroes? Yeah, sure. Um, well, for me, Chris, they were my heroes mm -hmm. because um, when you describe a hero, I think, you know, whether it's in a a movie or something it's the one that's the person that's come and rescued you know they're going to come on their white horse and they're going to come you know <laughs> or with their sword and be able to you know pave the path for you um and for me um I'm, there were three i know it's like 40 odd years and 150,000 staff and kamal's only mentioning three because it was those three um to be honest and you know the first one um paul baker who's the exec director of operations 
there was no need for him to really come out of his ivory tower to, yeah, he had the data in front of him, he could see what I was doing, but he could have easily sent it to somebody else and to inquire. But instead, he's the one that approached and had a discussion with me. And, you know, and he left me his calling card and he said, look, if you ever need any help, you know, here's my card. And for, number one, A, he made the effort to come and find out about my initiative, really liked it. But the fact that when I did call him, he stood up to his word. He said, yeah, I said, I'll help come on, the, you know, get on the train and come and talk to me. He saw something in me I didn't even see at that time. And that faith, I think, in that, you know, opportunity was huge. Um, and the same for Arif, when when I mentioned the Asian strategy, you know, he didn't nick my idea. We, we've heard so many stories in the past about females and anybody where, you know, you do all the hard work and then somebody comes along and takes your, you know, the final finale act, you know, this is this is a strategy. And the poor people who've been beavering away never get a look in. He didn't do that. He, you know, he absolutely encouraged me, showed me how to present it. I never presented to a board. So for that, you know, to this day, I'll constantly, you know, thank him for what he did, because if he had he could have easily done it, to be honest, and taken it. And I, would have, and I wouldn't have been the wiser to think that he'd taken my idea, but he didn't. And then finally for, you know, jumping across to corporate banking again, Truett, his style of leadership was so emotionally connecting. I learned so much from him that actually this was a new way of a male figure could also act. Whereas for the past, I've been dominated by these characters that were quite strong. And his style was just amazing. And the fact that he had total faith in me by just guiding me. So for me, they were my heroes. Without them, I definitely would probably stayed in middle management somewhere because I would not have had the courage to think that I had more to give. Um, I probably wouldn't have had the courage to go and explore something. And when those curveballs were hitting us, I probably would have just shook my head and said, yeah, being made redundant and I'm off or accepted something else. They came at the right time and they taught me that the curveballs, when they hit you, actually are great opportunities. And now I'm quite, you know, I look forward to them. So with their help, you know, I think allies, whether you're an ally or a hero, whatever you want to call them, um, without them, I, I think you can't really conquer this world on your own. Uh, Laura, what about your heroes? It's such an interesting way to think about it. I was, until you know, really this conversation, I, I'd never really thought about people as as heroes. But it's exactly what they were. Actually, you know, like Kamal, I have probably three or four people as I look back over my life and particularly career that really do stand out. And it's uh, you know very much along the lines of you know sometimes it's it's tough love. They tell you things you don't necessarily want to hear, um, but it is about confidence. It's about courage. It's about um, painting the art of the possible. I think back to a teacher at school and I think that very much kind of helped me. He was my geography teacher, um, but really took the time to get to know me as a person, you know, the, the person behind that kind of facade um, and show me what was possible in terms of, you know, have I thought about going to university? What would I like to do as a career? Um, unbelievably helpful insight I think he would have no idea the influence that he had on me actually in terms of the decisions um, that I subsequently went on to make um, similarly you know a real um, hero at you know in terms of BDO my first role at pointing out you know what was possible you know pointing out things that I was really good at thinking like things I needed to be better at but giving me that prompt always to think about going further trying harder putting myself outside of my 
comfort zone. And for me, as I think about those key people throughout my life, that, that element that they have in common is they've taken the time to get to know me. So some of the conversation that we've had, you know, me as a, a mother, I've got two young children and the impact that that has on my ability to balance the various different elements of my life. They um, understand how I'm wired, not just making assumptions based on a, on a CV or a job title. So um, as I kind of think about you know, what does success look like, it's I, I wonder and I hope that there are people um, out there that in terms of thinking back on their career might name me as one of those people that's made a really big difference to them. And I think that's how I like to kind of think about it around how do you give back to others and support others? Um, because actually, I, I can't think of a person that has been successful, however you want to define that, who can't point to one, two, three individuals that have really taken them under their wing, gone out of their way um, and, and being selfless in terms of helping um, that other person. So um, definitely some key people in my life. And it is that point around giving me the courage and the confidence to follow the passion and to follow the dream. Um, when I may have been too scared to do it without that little shove. You've led me on perfectly to my to my last question, and um, I guess it'd be great, Kamel, if we, we start with you. What piece of advice would you give to our listeners to feel empowered to spot the potential in people who might be the less obvious? If that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Um, for me, I'm going to go taking on from Laura's point. As a leader, well, you call it a leader, somebody leading a team, unless you're prepared to show your vulnerability and put yourself out there. Um, so my team, they used to be like my second family. I did know about their personal situations. I did know about what was going on in their life. And they knew about me. And that connectivity, I think, then prepare, I used to say, they're prepared to walk, go the extra mile for you. Um, and by getting to know somebody really personally, you're hopefully, the reason you're the leader, you can see that umbrella picture, you can see the wider picture. And you can see that their potential in them that they might not be able to see themselves. But I think people, you know, if they haven't got the courage, I certainly didn't. And I was very shy, very up to quite, I would say, three quarters of my career was about that, you know, reluctant, subservient character, because that was the culture that I'm brought up with. You know, you, you respect age, you respect seniority. And that was being translated as somebody being weak or somebody not having a backbone. Well, actually, no, it's just my mannerism. But how would they get to know that unless they got to know me? How would they challenge me? And it wasn't until somebody challenged me and saying, you know, I, I witnessed what you just saw. You shouldn't. You should have spoken up. But I said, but he was the boss. And it's not until those pennies start dropping. So I would definitely, for me, it always comes down to, first of all, knowing your people, really getting to know them, getting to know what drives them. It doesn't have to be about grades or banding, but actually what is their purpose? helping them to discover their purpose. And I think once you know what your purpose is, whatever that is, then slowly that fear disappears. And certainly for me, when I did the Asian strategy, when I found that purpose, actually, as I said, I, I, I didn't matter that I hadn't gone on to Russell University. It didn't matter that I was a female or ethnic minority. I knew I wanted to do this. So it's actually, how do you help people find their purpose? And once they find their purpose, then I think they're really, they're empowered to actually shine and, and be able to go the extra mile. Amazing. Laura, what's, what's your advice for our listeners? I think very similar, actually. I think that those themes around authenticity, um, humanness, 
being willing to you know show some vulnerability you know as a as a leader you don't always know the answer particularly in the current um, times we're all working it out together so different people bring different perspectives different ideas so it very much is about being accessible being relatable so that everybody feels empowered to to speak up to to share their ideas and, and their perspective and um, you know it, it's a probably a fairly tactical point but I think the ability to chair meetings well is really underrated in in our world and in the business world because as a chair you hold so much um, influence around who gets to speak and whose voice gets heard and it's often what's not said is you know it's looking out for the body language it's looking out for the mannerisms and bringing in everybody in that conversation to say oh you look like you wanted to say something or you're looking thoughtful what's on your mind um, and encouraging those people who, for whatever reason, you know, just personality type, they're quieter for culture, cultural reasons, haven't felt confident or able to kind of get a word into the conversation. So giving people space, spotting the signs that somebody has got something to add. And everyone has always got something to add if you give them that thinking time and space and bringing everybody into the conversation. Um, and, you know, as I said, being relatable and, and human, uh, pull all of that together and I think that creates an incredibly powerful environment where you know anybody and everybody feels able uh, to share their perspective and you get to a better answer the more ideas you have. Well listeners if that doesn't blow your mind and inspire you I'm not sure what will um, and again I'm, I'm still cursing that we have to end these podcasts within 20 to 30 minutes uh, I could listen to Camille and Laura all day their, their stories are absolutely incredible and thanks again to them for, for sharing their experiences um, as always we'd love to hear from you please get in touch you can do so using the hashtag pwc underscore leap uh hashtag on twitter and on all the social medias we'd love to hear from you and as always please make sure you subscribe so you can keep up to date with future episodes but thanks for listening see you next time <music>